0: Hello and welcome to Grubbing in the Filth with me, Tom Sharp. Everyone loves a superlative. The biggest animal, the fastest runner, the tallest building. Our culture of sport revolves around this idea, the quickest, the strongest, the most points, the most caps. We like exceptionalism. Nobody's making a documentary about an average boxer who doesn't compete at a particularly high level, but has a really nice time boxing with his mates and likes keeping fit. We want to see athletes of renown, people who make sacrifices, people who compete at a high level and overcome and achieve. There's a kids' TV show, Deadly 60. In this programme, Steve Backshall teaches us about animals marked out by their deadliness. There's no programme called Drab 60, in which Steve Backshall travels around the world meeting various herd animals and filter feeders and birds which live in the park and eat seeds. Although, to be clear, if he did, inevitably, there'd be an incredible amount of fascinating information to learn about these creatures, and no creature's truly boring, and if you're a huge fan of, Cows or pigeons, please don't write in, we are on the same side. In this episode, we're going to learn about insects which are unique and exceptional, not because of their deadliness, but because of the environmental niche they inhabit. Insects thrive in the tropics, where their diversity is outrageous and exciting, but we're going the other way. We're going to learn about those extremophile creatures which inhabit cold, unforgiving conditions. After the musical break, we'll meet Professor Nick Teats, eschew the colourful vibrancy of the tropics, and meet the creatures which are impressive, by virtue of their resilience in the face of the cold. I was really excited to get to speak with Nick, specifically I want to learn about the Antarctic midge, and I wanted to learn about the Antarctic midge because its geographical distribution is unusual, relatively unique even. It's a form of exceptionalism that makes it interesting to me, but it's by no means a traditionally flashy creature. In addition to the Antarctic midge, I had the chance to ask Nick about all kinds of other insects which endure the cold, and learned all sorts about this unusual field, including its practical applications, which may surprise you. Hi Nicholas, how are you today? Uh, doing fine, how about you? Um, very, very well. Uh, quite cold, which is appropriate, I suppose, because we're going to be talking about the Antarctic midge and about cold tolerance insects. Let's start then. Could you introduce yourself and and tell us about your personal and professional relationship with with insects and invertebrates?
1: Yeah, sure. So my name is Nick Teats and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Entomology at the University of Kentucky. So I've been at the University of Kentucky for almost five years now, and prior to that. I completed a PhD in entomology at Ohio State University and then also did some research, a uh, short research position at the University of Florida prior to joining the faculty at Kentucky. So as far as my relationship with insects goes, I, I would guess I would describe myself as an accidental entomologist. I've always liked animals of all sorts growing up, uh, went out in the woods catching various critters, bringing them inside. Um, thankfully, my parents were okay with that. And it just kind of evolved into a a, a passion for biology and research. And, and so going into university, I knew I wanted to have a research-based career, but I wasn't really set on a system. And I sort of stumbled into a, a research position working on insects, and that's really where that sort of uh, passion for insects began. And then I continued on with that, and here I am today.
0: Fantastic. Well, I know that an area that you've studied extensively is cold tolerance in insects and insects and in their capacity to survive the cold. We tend not to see many insects through the winter months. I mean, it's winter here. If I go outside now, um, I'm not likely to see very many insects. Are insects dying off in the winter?
1: There, There is some die-off in the winter. Insect population sizes are are much lower in the winter. The the insects that make it to the next spring are, you know, the populations are pretty small and then they, they grow pretty quickly once the weather gets warmer, but they're not completely dying off. So it's not like they're completely going away. Um, there are lots, most insects that you see out and about in the spring and summer, a lot of those will have spent the winter in the place where you find them. And so they're really hard to find in the winter. They tend to find nice hidden sheltered places where they can avoid some of the extreme changes in temperature that we have in the winter. But um a lot of them would be underground or under the bark of trees or in leaf litter but there's a lot of insects still out there in the winter they're just they're inactive so they mostly go dormant and they're really hard to find.
0: So insects need to employ certain strategies in order to survive the winter months and to survive cold conditions would it be fair to say that insects are vulnerable to the cold?
1: Yeah I would say all insects are vulnerable to the cold to a certain extent Um, they tend to be really well adapted to survive in the climates that they're found in but uh, on the surface, though, insects are small, cold-blooded animals. So whatever the ambient temperature is or the temperature of their surroundings, that's what their body temperature is going to be. And so from, from that standpoint, they they are sensitive to changes in temperature. And they're also really small. So their ability to sort of buffer wings and temperature is limited as well. An analogy I like to use is if you, if you bake a turkey in the oven and pull it out and put it on the countertop, that turkey is going to be hot a few hours later. If you, take, if you do the same thing, you bake a Cornish hen and take it out of the oven and put it on the countertop, you only you have to eat that thing pretty quickly or it's going to get cold. Mm-hmm. So similar with insects, they, you know, they can't really retain heat very well since they're so small. So they do, they do tend to have a, a significant drop in body temperature when it gets cold. And in all biological processes, are dependent on temperature. We're we're just all all living organisms are chemical factories that are just constantly making and breaking down chemicals and in, in the body and uh and all of those reactions are, are temperature dependent. So when things get cold, everything slows down. And so it's really hard to sort of maintain what we would consider normal life if you're an insect. Now as as warm blooded animals like humans, we keep our body temperature the same all the time. So we don't really have to worry as much about change in temperature up to certain points. Obviously it can get I and mean, that sort of thing. But in general, we're able to kind of maintain normal function at a wider range of temperatures. Um, but that being said, insects have an incredible ability to cope with extreme cold in certain places. And, and so even though they are physiologically sensitive to cold, they can still have adaptations that allow them to survive in cold places.
0: I see. Well, I want to talk about cold tolerance in insects in a broad sense, but let's use uh, Belgica-Antarctica the antarctic midge as our jumping off point uh, as an insect that i know you've studied extensively so the antarctic midge is referred to as antarctica's only insect is that the case
1: that's a little bit of a stretch but not too far from the truth so they they're antarctica's only endemic insect and so when we say the word endemic in biology means that it's found in one place but nowhere else so it's the only insect that you can find in antarctica and nowhere else in the world And it's also not that far off from being the only insect, from the standpoint that there's there's only three true insects you can find in Antarctica. So there's the Antarctic midge that we just discussed. There's a second species, uh, Paraclystinae, that is native. Well, it's it's found in a small part of Antarctica, one little one island chain in Antarctica, but it's also found in South America. So it's not considered endemic. Most The largest populations are found outside of Antarctica but there is a small uh, group of islands that have this species as well then there's a third species that's an invasive species that was native to the sub-Antarctic to some islands in between South America and Antarctica and in the 1950s or 60s was accidentally introduced to one island in Antarctica that's sort of the extent of the insects you can find in Antarctica.
0: And for those who have never seen a picture of Belgian Antarctica or the Antarctic midge, it's quite a unique-looking creature. So, exactly what kind of insect
1: is this? Yeah, so it's a a midge. Is a type of fly. So it's a, a family called Chironomidae. We have lot. There's lots of species of midges across the world. If you've ever been to a lake or a river, and you see a cloud of insects swarming above the water, those are typically midges. They kind of look like mosquitoes, but they they don't bite. There are biting midges that are different family, but this group of midges, the Chironomidae, are non-biting midges. They typically live in aquatic environments. But what's one, what's unique about the Antarctic midge is it's a wingless midge, and this is an adaptation that's quite common in polar regions. And it's for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is the uh, in Antarctica, especially where they live, they live on small offshore islands it can be really windy there. And so the if for, for species like this that live on small islands that are surrounded by large expanses of sea, wings can be uh, a disadvantage because if you blow out to sea and drown, you won't be able to reproduce. So a lot of species in polar regions have, yeah, have evolved winglessness. And this is to help make sure they don't blow away. It's also thought to be a way to conserve heat as well. Large flat surfaces like wings are a really good place for uh, heat to be lost to the environment. And so it's thought to be a way to keep them uh, from getting too cold as well, and so if you ever see a picture of the adults of the midges, especially they they look kind of like an alien creature. If you have it's hard to picture a fly without wings, but that's essentially what it what it is. And so they, you know, they kind of have long legs and a slender black body. So they're kind of they're kind of weird looking, admittedly. And then we do most of our work on the larvae, and so the larvae are pretty typical looking chironomid or midge larvae. They're they look like little tiny worms. A lot of people feed like bloodworms to their aquariums at home, little dried up bloodworms. And so they're in the same group as bloodworms. And so they're these little worm-like larvae. That's how they spend most of their life.
0: I see. Now, have you ever encountered these insects actually sort of in the wild?
1: Yeah. So I've been down to Antarctica three times to, to collect midges. Good
0: grief. So what what is it like to, to come upon these creatures in the wild? What kind of conditions
1: are you finding them in? They tend to live they have to live on areas that we call ice free areas in Antarctica, so while most people think of Antarctica as sort of a frozen white sheet, especially along the coast, there's a lot of islands that uh, in the summertime especially will have the snow and ice will melt off and they'll be temporarily ice free this is the, this allows for plants to grow. This is also where many of the the penguins and also the seals will will nest and form their colonies in the summer if you've seen pictures of those and so these are really kind of hot spots for biodiversity and so the the midges are they're detritivores which means they're decomposers that's what we think they're mostly feeding on and so they tend to be found in areas where there's where there's lots of plants and especially where there's some dead plant material or decaying plant material and so we're really just looking for areas that have appropriate moisture it can't be too dry if you go up to the you know top of a ridge somewhere and it's just dry crumbly rocks you're not going to find any midges there so we're looking for kind of low-lying areas that are appropriately wet, have lots of plant life, and then and then basically you're just crawling around on your stomach, flipping over rocks, <laughs> digging through moss, and and looking for we typically are looking for the larvae, uh, and you just see little white signs of wiggling and then and then you and then you found them. Although when the adults are out, which is only for a brief period, you do sometimes see them crawling up on the surface. And so they're a little bit more active and so if you happen to be there at the right time, when the adults are out, you can also see the adults moving around on, on rocks and moss and things like that.
0: With Belgic Antarctica, it's, it's an insect that can clearly survive cold conditions, you know, better than most insects. We've touched on this a little bit, but what is it that allows Belgic Antarctica to survive in these Antarctic conditions? What adaptations does it have in particular that allow it to, to tolerate the cold? That's a really good
1: question. So we're, you know, that's that's an area of active research right now. Right. Um, we've learned a lot about its biology and and really the the hard thing at this point is been trying to figure out what is unique about the midge. we found a lot of things that it does physiologically to cope with the cold. And I can summarize some of those, but what's really interesting thus far is we haven't really pinpointed what is special about this insect that isn't found in other insects that are incapable of surviving there. So it, it could be a matter of, the way we look at this is there's sort of two possibilities and they're not mutually exclusive so it could be a combination. Um, so all insects to some degree have an ability to survive cold. So one possibility is that the midge has the same adaptations and just does them better. And so maybe it's using the same mechanisms but it just has a superior ability to do these cold adapt adaptations or on the other hand it could be that it has a completely new adaptation that hasn't been discuss- discovered in other insects. Those are harder to define because typically when you're you're, you're you're starting with a foundation of knowledge and trying to build on that. So if it's doing something completely different, we haven't pinpointed what that is yet. My speculation is that it'd be a combination of the two. It probably has some things that are similar to other insects that just does them better. And potentially there's some novel adaptations as well. And we're trying to figure out what those might be using a variety of approaches. Some of the things we do know about it that help it survive in Antarctica, um, one thing is that in addition, while we often think of cold as sort of the primary feature of Antarctic environments, they're also really dry environments as well, uh, especially seasonally dry. So when the when the snow, when the water freezes and ice forms, and the snow, there's a lot of water around, but it's not liquid water. And so the insects that live there have to be able to survive long periods of time without water. And so the midge can is really tolerant of dehydration. And this also helps it survive the cold as well. They they survive freezing conditions better when they're slightly dehydrated. So we think that these two stresses together, dehydration plus the cold, help them survive the long periods of time in the um, Antarctic winters. And we've, we've also looked a lot at some of the molecular adaptation or some of the things that are happening at the molecular level when they're exposed to um, cold or, or, or dry conditions. And, and nothing too surprising in these In these experiments so far um, although one thing that they seem to do is they seem to have a lot of insects use various proteins to deal with stressful conditions and the midge larvae seem to have these proteins turned on all the time as opposed to only using them when they need them and so it seems to have that they're sort of prepared to deal with these stresses in advance of the stress as opposed to many other insects which will only make these proteins when they need them
0: You mentioned just then about um, some of the kind of genetic elements of the midge and how having certain genes turned on permanently seems to give it an edge in its survival. Now, one thing I've read about reading about the Antarctic midge is the relatively small size of its genome and this being kind of related to its uh, as an adaptation that allows it to survive or that helps it survive. That's not something that I can make a great deal of sense of. So I wondered could you give me a sense of what that means in terms of it has this supposedly small genome and, and this gives it an edge in some way?
1: Yeah, it's, that's a, as far as it being an advantage, that's still somewhat speculative and we're trying to work that out, but kind of a backstory to this. So all, all organisms have a genome. It's the, the full complement of DNA found in an organism that uh, codes for all of the information needed to make that organism. And so when I was a graduate student back around about 10 years ago at this point, I was trying to see if the Antarctic midge contained a set of genes called uh, late embryogenesis active proteins. Sometimes they're also called dehydrins. These are proteins that are found in some organisms that help them cope with really dry conditions. So I mentioned the midge is really good at being dehydrated or surviving dehydrating conditions. And so there's other, other midges that have these genes. Um, they're also common in some bacteria and also in some little brine shrimp that can survive desiccation. So one of, my, one of my projects as a PhD student was to try to see if the Antarctic midge also contained these genes and if they were involved in their ability to survive dehydration. So I spent a lot of time using various methods to try to isolate these genes and see if they were present in the midge. And we ha- we're having no success My PhD advisor said, "Well, let's just sequence the whole genome." And this is something that's done really routinely now. Um, So even ten years ago, you know, these newer technologies we have for sequencing genomes were just sort of getting underway. We'd also identified a um, a collaborator, Joanna Kelly, from was at Stanford at the time, who was really interested in the genomes of extreme adapted organisms, and so she was sort of leading this effort. Uh, So we ended up just sequencing the whole entire genome, and. And so, for my part of the project, they don't have these genes. So that was pretty good proof that I wasn't just doing something wrong in the lab. That they actually don't have these genes present in their in their genome. So that was both a relief and a disappointment at the same time. I suppose I had to think of other things to work on. But um, but we had all this information now. And one of the big surprises about the genome was just how small it was. Um, you know, typically most insect genomes. There's a lot of variation in how big an insect genome was. In insect genome you know, genomes are. But to that point, the smallest genome that had been described in an insect was the human body louse. And so these are the little lice that you get when your kids go to school and everything. And these yes. are really small genomes, partly because they're using their host for a lot of their metabolism. They don't need as many genes as other insects do because they're relying on their host to provide some of the, the uh, chemicals, biochemicals they need in their body. But in the case of the midge, its genome was even smaller. So at the time, you know, I think I always used to joke that this, this anaerobic midge just likes being the most extreme organism in every way possible. So it had to just have the smallest genome of anything. And, and the reason it's small, though, in this case, is it, it hasn't lost any major sets of genes. It seems to have the, a, a similar complement of genes as other flies. So if we compare the genome to like the fruit fly or the mosquitoes, the number of genes hasn't really changed. But what has changed is that it doesn't have very much what we call non-coding DNA. So most, a large percentage of the genome is, is uh, information that never actually gets made into a protein. It's sort of regulatory information to help regulate the expression of genes. Some of it's what has been historically called as junk DNA or just sort of extra DNA that has been picked up in the genome over time. and doesn't seem to have any important functions, but it's just there. A lot of times pe- uh, organisms will accidentally pick up extra DNA into their genome from, from viruses or bacteria in the environment, all various sources of, of this non-coding DNA. Well, it turns out the MIS just doesn't have very much of this relative to other insects. And, you know, so we, we don't know what this means or, you know, it could be a coincidence, but our, you know, our speculation at the moment is that this could be important because it takes energy to replicate a genome. Every time a cell divides, every time you make a new cell in your body, you're making a new copy of the genome, and that takes energy. And so in these extreme energy-limited habitats like Antarctica, our, our thought is that perhaps that it's um, allowing the midge to conserve energy over the rounds of cell division so it doesn't have to um, use as much energy to make its genome. Again, that's still speculation though um, and we're we're currently working on sequencing other genomes from some closely related species, and so we'll have a better answer to that question in a few years
0: fantastic, but you, before you before you talked about the genome just then, you mentioned that the Antarctic midge is able to survive dehydration to a to an impressive degree, i guess and I was wondering, surviving dehydration. Is that one of the things that allows it to survive in the Antarctic because of the dry conditions or is dehydration part of its tactic for surviving the cold?
1: It seems to be a little bit of both. It's definitely necessary to be able to survive dehydration in Antarctica. So the Antarctic summer is roughly three months. And so for the other nine months of the year, there's really no liquid water available because it's all frozen. And so these, you know, these insects do have to be able to survive long periods of time without water. And this is quite common. We often see um, freeze tolerance and dehydration tolerance go together. And one of the reasons is that at the level of a cell, freezing and dehydration are pretty similar. So what happens when an insect freezes is it's the water outside of the cell that freezes first. So you have... for example, the blood, the water in the blood freezes. There's also just what's called the extracellular space, which is a sort of a fluid surrounding the cells. That that water freezes first. And when that, when that water freezes, all the stuff that's dissolved in the blood, for example, becomes more concentrated because everything that's dissolved in the blood is dissolved in the liquid part. It's not dissolved in the ice part. When the ice forms, it essentially is reducing the amount of liquid water in the blood, which makes the stuff in the blood more concentrated, that causes water to leave the cells. And then, um, and then that makes the cells dehydrated. So at the, at the level of the cell, there's a lot of similarity between dehydration and freezing stress. That's one of the reasons why I think they often go together like that. In the case of the midge though, it does seem that if it dehydrates before it freezes, that it's better able to survive freezing. And we think this is for a couple of reasons. One is when there's less water around to begin with, that there's less damage that occurs. So one of the reasons why freezing is challenging to organisms is that when ice crystals form, they can damage the cells. They can pierce things. These sharp ice crystals are forming inside the body. They can cause just some physical damage. So reducing the amount of water will would likely reduce that effect. And then the other thing is that at the molecular level, there's what we would consider to be cross-tolerance between dehydration and freezing. And so this is the idea that a lot of the things, a lot of the proteins and uh, biochemical processes that would protect against dehydration stress would also protect against freezing stress. And again, that's related to the sort of similarity between these two stresses at the cellular level. So When an insect gets a little bit of dehydration first, it can sort of boost or upregulate some of these defenses that will then help it survive freezing.
0: The Antarctic midge is, is clearly kind of a celebrity in the world of cold tolerance, being it's the only endemic insect in Antarctica. But it's by no means the only insect that can cope well with extreme conditions, as you've mentioned a few examples. I wondered, could you give us some other examples of insects that can survive an extreme cold and whether or not they use different strategies to survive these conditions?
1: Yeah, that's a good question we're obviously big fans of the Antarctic midge. It's our favorite insect, but there are lots of insects that can survive much lower temperatures than the Antarctic midge. Right. And, okay. um, and what's, what's impressive about the Antarctic midge is the duration of time it spends frozen. So it's again, like nine months of the year. That's that's in that situation, but where, where the Antarctic midge is spending the winter, it's very, it usually goes under rocks and, um, and then it's buried in a nice thick blanket of snow and ice. So it's almost like a little igloo that forms over top of it. So even though the air temperatures in Antarctica are among the coldest on Earth, the midge is not really experiencing anything close to that. So We have many species in Europe and North America even that can survive lower temperatures than the midge can survive, right. um, not necessarily the duration of time. So a couple examples that are some of my favorites. I previously did some research on an insect called the goldenrod gallfly. And I, I assume you have goldenrod in the UK. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. It's- it's sort of a the plant, right? Yeah, it's a it's a tall sort of prairie plant you see it a lot in mm. um, if you have farm farmland that's sort of been reclaimed and starting to re go back to prairie. It's often really common in those sorts of areas. Anyway, it's just a tall plant, and this fly, the female will lay a single egg in the stem of the goldenrod plant, about halfway up, so roughly maybe half a meter off the ground, and um, and that single egg when she lays that egg in the plant, it causes the plant to form a tumor. And so the tumor is the size of, it's a little bit larger than a grape. It forms this little ball in the middle of the stem. So That's how you can find them. You have this nice, most of the time you have a really straight stem and then you get these some stems that have this little ball in the middle. And so that's a gall and that's what the larva is feeding on. So anyway, the important thing here though, is that the plant dies in the fall, but it still stays erect. They don't fall over. And the larva spends the whole winter in that gall, in that tumor that it formed, it's not eating anymore because the, the plant is dead. But it just hangs out in there. And because this these galls are high up on the plant, again up, up to a meter high, usually between a half a meter and a meter high, they um, the larvae are experiencing whatever temperature the air is. And so they're in the north in North America. They're found all the way up into Canada, pretty high up into Canada. So whatever that air temperature gets to the this insect has to be able to survive. And they're another example of a freeze tolerant insect where they, their ice, ice can form inside their body and they can survive that. And so they can go pretty low. Um, we have freezers in our lab that are minus 70 degrees Celsius. You can pop one of these larvae in there overnight and pull it out the next day. It's frozen solid. If you drop it on the table, it kind of bounces like a BB and then it uh, totally fine after that, once it thaws out. So they're pretty impressive features as well sure. and one thing that they do differently than the midge as far as a strategy goes is these are classic cases of insects that accumulate high levels of antifreeze molecules in their blood so the mid- Antarctic midge does this to some extent but this species is has an incredible ability to, to make these antifreeze molecules and at, at the chemical level they're very similar to the antifreeze you put in your car uh antifreeze in a car is a, is a chemical called ethylene glycol and so the, they're not using ethylene glycol directly, but it's molecules that are very structurally similar to ethylene glycol. Uh, glycerol is a really common one, for example. And so they're creating lots and lots of these and putting them in the blood. Um, they're still freezing, but the, the antifreezes help protect against some of the damage caused by the freezing. So they're, in the winter, these larvae that live in these galls, if you, if you kind of pop one open, their, their blood is almost like syrup. It's a real thick, syrupy consistency. It'd probably be pretty sweet to the taste as well. I've never never tried one, but um, yeah. So that that's one of their their strategies that is a little bit different. Um, another ex- ex- species, again, that I'll just mention briefly. We, we're doing a little bit of work on this one specifically, trying to sequence its genome. There's been a lot of great work on the out of the Czech Republic on this species. It's another fly. Sim- it's closely related to fruit flies. It's called Chymomyza castata. This is the only insect that's been discovered that is capable of surviving in liquid nitrogen. So liquid nitrogen is around 100, minus 180 degrees Celsius. And um, this the larvae of this species, if you give it under certain circumstances, are able to survive immersion in liquid nitrogen. Now, we don't really know. You know it, this doesn't seem to be a natural thing. Obviously, it never gets that cold in the environment. They are found in pretty cold places, mostly in northern Europe. They can get up into Finland and... Places like that, but um, this was sort of just an accidental discovery in the lab that they're capable of doing this. And so there's been a lot of good work on trying to figure out how, how this can do that. Um, one of the things this this species seems to do is it it's similar to the goldenrod golf fly. It uses a um, a cryoprotective molecule in its blood, but one of the major ones in this fly is, is proline, which is an amino acid. So that's one difference there. It's using a different molecule, a similar strategy but a different molecule and the other fly I was discussing before. And there's a lot of other work on showing how, um, you know, some of the cell biology of how this thing survives freezing, a lot of great work coming out of the Czech Republic. And we're trying to work on the genome to sort of see if, at the level of the genome, if we can see if there are classes of genes or certain proteins that might be present that are absent in other insects that could explain this ability as well.
0: That's incredible. I'd sort of naively assumed that, you know, this this Antarctic mage I was... Hailing it as this creature that was unique in its ability to survive but it's it's a it it's it's a celebrity in, in the field in the sense of where it lives but th- there's animals out there i'm I'm bold over that an animal can survive liquid nitrogen i mean this this study you're doing into these these fields what are the the wider implications of the study of cold tolerance in, in insects
1: right yeah i think there's there's two that we mostly focus on there's there's an ecological aspect to it. Uh, so if we look at where particular insects live, it's oftentimes largely defined by their ability to survive the winter. There's, so I, for, as an example, prior to moving to Kentucky, so I don't know if you're familiar with the U.S. geography. Um, so Kentucky is sort of a mid-latitude Hello. state. It's, it's kind of, in, it's not sort of maybe in between the north and the south, um, kind of at the intersection between northern U.S. and southern U.S. And prior to that, I did, I did a postdoc at um, University of Florida, which I uh, have to convert to kilometers here, um, probably a thousand kilometers from, okay. so not, not huge distance, only takes about 10 hours by car to get between the two places. But the, the types of insects that are in Florida versus Kentucky are wildly different. Florida has all these huge exotic looking insects that we'll never see in Kentucky and a lot of that is because the insects in Florida can't tolerate a Kentucky winter. So As you go from warm to, to cold places, you're, you're sort of seeing the, the boundary of where an insect species can survive is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes highly dependent on its ability to survive winter in a particular place. So by being able to sort of understand how insects can survive winter, what's the limit of their ability to survive cold, we can kind of make predictions about where different insects might be able to survive, especially in the context of climate change where what we're seeing is that winter conditions in many places are changing much more rapidly than summer conditions. We often, when climate change is in the news, they focus on, on summer heat waves and, and these really extreme heat events, and and that's sort of the you know how climate change is often depicted. But in reality, we see much bigger changes in winter than summer that are happening, and so you know, this is going to lead to insects being able to live in new places at new time, um, and they're capable. So that's part of it, the ecological side of it. From a more biomedical stance, though, we're really interested in um, in sort of trying to apply this information, especially at the molecular level, to fields like uh, cryopreservation research. And so there's, in, in the US, for example, there's a huge shortage of organs for transplants. There's a lot of people on the waiting list for a heart transplant at the moment. There's really a you know they're not able to meet all those demands. And one of the reasons is that for a heart transplant, just as an example, you have about six hours to take the heart out of the donor and get it into the recipient before the heart is no longer able to function anymore. And so if we can learn how, how some of these insects, which again are still complex multicellular organisms, even though that we think of them as simple creatures, if we can figure out what tricks they're using to survive freezing, maybe... At some point in the future, we'd be able to apply this to be able to better store human tissues and organs in the cold as well, um, which could have a lot of benefits for for biomedical research. So we're a long way away from that. I'm not trying to make we're not promising that we're going to do that anytime soon, but um, that's part of our motivation for learning sort of the basic underlying biology of of freeze tolerance in in a variety of insects.
0: Well, of course, I mean any any knowledge is is valuable, I guess, but it sounds like really important work and really worthy work so so yeah fantastic thank you um by the way when you i really appreciate you converting that into kilometers for me i have to admit the uk likes to sort of stand proudly with europe and pretend that we do things in metric but we've got a really confused system where we sort of we're using metric and imperial for different things the result being that no one really knows you know we can't convert between the two and we get very confused so are we talking if it's a thousand kilometers, are we talking about six hundred and twenty-one miles? That's the conversion I've done.
1: Yeah, that's about right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: This is a little concession for my. Yeah, I should have known that. I have, a, I
1: have a graduate student in my lab from the UK. He'll occasionally drop units like stone, and I have no idea what he's talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, stone for, for a person's weight. Uh, grams for anything else.
1: Okay.
0: It's, it's it's an odd setup, but but yeah, uh, that's wildly off what we're discussing. So. Thank you so much for speaking to me. It's a really, really interesting field. And and yeah, I really appreciate you spending time discussing this with me and sharing your expertise. And yeah, thank you
1: so much, Nicholas. Yeah, happy to do so.
0: I'm really grateful to Nick for taking the time to speak with me about the Antarctic midge and about other insects which live in what for many would be miserable conditions. I mentioned earlier that all animals are interesting. Cows are everyday creatures, much less likely to get a rise out of us than, say, a golden eagle or a giant squid or a gorilla or a king cobra. But of course, there's a great deal to know about cows, and of course they're interesting. The Antarctic midge is not particularly colourful, not large, not conspicuous. What bizarre lives they lead. What a strange niche they inhabited. The way in which insects can cope with the cold is, I think, almost humbling. I wouldn't like to be plunged into liquid nitrogen. It wouldn't agree with me. And so to think there are creatures that can survive that staggers me. But then, it does speak to the complexity of nature, and perhaps to the importance of trying to decentralise our view of the world. Acknowledging that the human experience isn't the default from which other animals stray to varying degrees. To a point, humans can maybe be said to have escaped or overcome our niche, often to the detriment of the environment around us. We live lives defined by our capacity to think and engineer our way out of danger. Humans, after all, can survive in all kinds of extreme environments, and we do so by engineering survival within those environments, through the clothes we wear, the homes we build. The Antarctic midge probably doesn't realise the niche it inhabits, is a miserable one, and in the grand scheme of things, it isn't a miserable one. It's just one that we couldn't cope with, but which the Midge takes to with gusto. Yet, being somewhat unable to rationalise that, I can't help but admire the resilience and the strength of character, which I unscientifically attribute to these odd little insects. I'm pleased to call myself a devotee, a fan of the Antarctic Midge. Drab, dark and wingless, but an absolute trooper, and therefore I think... Worth celebrating. Grubbing in the Filth was written and produced by me, Tom Sharp, with music by Will Wilhelm. Social media is a barren, frozen wasteland. Let's huddle together for warmth. You can find me on Twitter at GITF Podcast or Instagram at Grubbing in the Filth. You can also email grubbingandtheirfilth at gmail.com Until next time, bye.